Welcome back to the Band of History. Today we are bringing you something a little different. This marks the beginning of a new interview series that I will sprinkle in between episodes of the regular show. I've got some interesting guests lined up, so don't worry, the regular episodes will continue to come. First up is Daniel Rohr, a young Canadian filmmaker who has cut his teeth working in the documentary space, traveling the world, exploring human stories. Daniel and I are both based out of Toronto, so we sat down to discuss being brought on to direct the new documentary about Robbie Robertson's life entitled Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. We will discuss how Robbie's story was trusted to a young, ambitious filmmaker who up until that point had not made a film of its size. Throughout the process, the film went from a small Canadian documentary to a star-studded affair with interviews from Bruce Springsteen and David Geffen to being executive produced by the likes of Martin Scorsese and Ron Howard. Now, Daniel and I have become friends over the past year, and it was a great pleasure to sit down and record talking about his process, his career, and his love of the band. We also talk about how he approached the story, the controversy around Levon and Robbie, and a chance to set the record straight on a few questions I know our listeners want to hear. This is my interview with Daniel Rohr. Okay, let's, let's start back really early, as early as we can go here. Um, as a fellow filmmaker, I remember I had that one moment I knew that I wanted to make movies. Uh, did you have a similar moment? I know it's different for everybody, but did you have a moment like that? You know, I don't really have a moment where I like saw this film or that film and I just knew that this is what I had to do. For me, it was a little bit more organic where filmmaking just sort of existed at the confluence of all these things that I was interested in. And really what I identified was not that I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I wanted to make documentaries nonfiction films because that was traveling experiencing new cultures meeting interesting people going to places i've never been before but you know photography cinematography editing telling stories um and it was just everything i was engaged and interested with in one medium and so i was like that's what i really want to do and so when i went to, to college for a year in savannah georgia i really had the opportunity there to dig in and tell some interesting stories and go to these weird places these you know post-industrial little southern towns and meet the folks there and and make little films and that's sort of how I got my start and that's how I became interested in in making documentaries right what drew you to Savannah Georgia of all places like it obviously steeped in culture down in the south of the states there but you're from this area in the kind of southern Ontario. What drew you down there? Well, I'm from Toronto, but, you know, when I, I went uh, down to Georgia because they gave me a really big scholarship. Okay, yeah. It was very simple. They picked me. I, I, uh, I graduated high school with very poor marks. I went to the Etobicoke School of the Arts in Toronto, which is a, an amazing school. I was really lucky to go there. Uh, but I don't think I had the grades to get into UFT or, or any of the other schools. So I went down to this art school and it was a wild adventure. It was a really interesting place. I met some cool folks and made some, you know, interesting friends. And it was a very influential part of, of my experience. But uh, I identified pretty early on that academically and intellectually, I wasn't very interested in what I was doing there. It was more about uh, uh, being there and ha getting to explore this place that I thought was very interesting and uh, you know, sort of come of age and, and get into some trouble and just do some interesting projects. That's cool. Um, now, at least as per your IMDb, you've been, I think your first credit on IMDb is like 2011, and you're still a pretty young filmmaker. But one thing that you often see the narrative kind of um, on, on online or when people are being interviewed is like, wow, you're just this young filmmaker that's made it overnight, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but they come out a, of nowhere. Yeah, but you're grinding. You're oh, yeah, grinding. Totally. And I've had a chance to watch a few of your documentaries here and there, uh, a lot of your short ones. And then prior to Once Were Brothers, there was one feature length. Tell me about that kind of period in your life of grinding it out and working towards something like this. I'm assuming you never thought you would maybe do a project quite like this, but you wanted to get to this level. Tell me a little bit about that period. Well, I mean, for me, this level, you know, making it feel like once we're brothers with working with Robbie and having all these high profile individuals in my film is the dream. But, you know, when I was 18 years old, I had no idea how to make a living making films. I didn't know very much about the business of making films. Right. It was very much a big a bit mystifying to me all I knew is that I really loved making them and so that's what I focused on and 
I sort of took two and a half, three years, and I just made all these films nonstop. And I dropped out of school, and I would just go to places that interested me, and I would make a film there. And my parents were very supportive, and uh, I'd come back and like you know earn a little bit of money doing whatever odd job, and then I'd go to another place and make a film. So. I went to uh, Israel, right on the border of the Gaza Strip, and I made a film there. And I would just land there with a backpack full of camera equipment that I sort of knew how to use, and a computer and hard drives. And, um, you know, didn't know what the film would be about, but I would just challenge myself five weeks, find a story, shoot the film, and make something. And I did that three or four times. I went to Uganda, I went to the high Arctic, rather than the Bay Nunavut. Um, I went to the Middle East, as I as I mentioned, and then slowly people sort of started to pay attention. And 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 you know the work even now I'm proud of it. I made those films when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, just by myself, just with fueled really by youthful naiveness, not knowing the process, not knowing how to do it, just trying to figure it out. But what that taught me is every aspect of the craft, the relationship between editing and cinematography. You know what it really means to be a director and a conveyor of tone how i can take you know form in our, my own approach to filmmaking how i can put my stamp on it and and what my uh, aesthetic is right and and what my sensibility is and so those first few films i probably made from 2011 to 2014 mm -hmm. 2015 and they were very influential they were very important and this was before anyone was paying me to make movies and right it was just I, I very much viewed it as my film school. I was just going to say, you kind of, instead of doing that traditional film school path, and like you went out there and lived and learned it, it that was, way. That, yeah, I mean, film school, I think is phenomenal for a lot of reasons. It's great yeah. for building relationships and contacts, and you have access to all this equipment. But what I identified is that I was in a unique place where for the first time, you could take a backpack, mm -hmm. you know, with a 5D or whatever, and go make a movie and go yeah. make a documentary. And you don't really need much. And I can run sound and shoot interviews and really do everything. And, you know, they're charming films and there's a lot of heart and soul in them. Yeah. And that's sort of what I identify. And and I'm I don't really like classrooms. I don't like learning that way. I'm very autodidactic. I'm yeah. much more comfortable just getting out into the world and like cutting my teeth by like making things and being outside of my comfort zone and doing th things like that. And I look back on those first few years of some of some of the most incredible memories of my life. It was just absolutely extraordinary. No, that makes sense. You know, one of the greatest documentarians of all time, Werner Herzog, I believe he didn't watch a movie till he was 19 years old because he grew up in some small Bavarian village. And then he continues to say that, you know, the best way to tell a story is just go out there and live, go be a butcher, go, you know, do something that's not about filmmaking necessarily. So that way it can inform your story in such a refreshing yeah, way. Yeah, you, you learn about life. And the thing about the films I was making is it achieved both of those ends. I was simultaneously yeah. learning about the world. I would be studying issues that were important to me. So you make a film right on the border between Israel and the Gaza Strip in this small town that receives heavy rocket fire. You spend five weeks there interviewing the people that live there and talking to people that are impacted by this rocket fire and hope for peace and everything like this. And you learn a whole lot about that conflict. Or if you spend, you know, two or three weeks in Kitchener-Manks with Benuang First Nation making a film about the most prolific sex offender in Canadian history, an Anglican minister mm -hmm. that abused hundreds of Native boys, you know, you learn about how the profound injustices um, that uh, continue to exist and the disparities between Canada's original inhabitants right. or the indigenous people that have been here for you know, 10,000 years and uh, the settlers who come and assert their laws and everything like this and mm -hmm. the colonial overtures that continue to, um, uh, to continue to exist. Right. And continue to be oppressive and and you know there's a lot to be said for lived experience and i personally put a lot more emphasis on lived experience than you know learning in a classroom and 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 the more traditional ways right now i think i think you know a lot of people listening to this that make documentaries or even just people interested in it the short makes sense because it it's what it is it's short it's easier to do you can pick up your 5d you can go make something but Prior to Once We're Brothers, before we jump into that, I believe you did one feature documentary. 65 minutes. 65 yeah, minutes. Now, feature, I guess. what's what's the jump like there? What's the what's the challenge there doing something like that? Obviously, storytelling becomes a lot more yeah. difficult. Well, but... by, by the time you make, you know, six mm -hmm. short films that range in time from seven minutes to you know 30 minutes or whatever it is, once you do that... Um, 
you know, I can frame a 60 minute film in my head as four 15 minute films. Right. Well, I can make 15 minute films now, like with my eyes closed. Well, it helps if your eyes are open, but you know, very <laughs> straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, once I sort of frame a 60 minute film in my head like that, Oh, it's just four 15 minute films. It becomes a lot less scary and a lot more, uh, approachable. Mm -hmm. And you know, my film about Robbie Robertson is like, you know, six 15 minute films, yeah. six and a half 15 minute films. And so the jump was sort of organic. I was I'd ready for it. I made that film when I was 22. And I worked with a philanthropist in Toronto, this wonderful man called Bill Burt, who was a wonderful mentor and, and friend to me. He uh, uh, very sadly passed away a few years ago, and, and I miss him dearly. But Bill and I made this film together, and he sort of sent me on my way. And, and you know, with very, very little money in retrospect, I went to Uganda and I shot this film. And looking back on that, the fact that we pulled that off and actually finished something and made something is extraordinary. Right. We were so unqualified for that. It was really wild. Um, and we were, I was, I personally was in way over my head. It was, if I, and I thought that if I could make this movie, like when we were on the ground, Uganda running this big team, running this big project, I figured if I could do this, I can do anything. Right. This will be the hardest thing I ever do until I made the Robbie doc, in which case that then which, became, which, which is the next thing. So yeah. I read an exclaim article that came out probably in September around the time when the film premiered at yeah. TIFF. Um, to be clear. Uh, I yeah. have to say that that Exclaim article is totally unauthorized. It was right. sort of written by like a rogue producer who really didn't have much to do with the film in the last six to eight months of production. Um, clarification, so, yeah. Yeah, so just, just it's something that I didn't give pay much attention to. I don't think it has a lot of credibility. And right. for the people who really, you know, were in the trenches making the movie, we were kind of disappointed that that individual decided to go and, and write that. And I think the team was... You, you know, wasn't pleased that that uh, that that happened sort of behind yeah. all of our backs in a way. Um, so just so you oh, know, no, that's that's, that's great. That's yeah. great information. So like the next question, maybe that you can clarify here uh, on the next one. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it was very kind of lengthy and it seemed like a difficult process to make this film like yeah. any film. Right. Um, especially when you have like a high profile individual like Robbie and you're optioning book rights and, sure. and life rights and things of that nature. Um and so how did you get involved? Because at least in this article or other kind of sprinklings of things I've seen online, um, it was in development prior to your yeah. attachment. And like, how did you get involved? So in, let me be very sure about this. In, at the very end of 2015, I went to go see a mentor and, and friend of mine is this guy in Toronto called Michael Levine, who's the godfather of like Canadian media, who is incredibly kind to young talent. He's a wonderful mentor and I've known him for a few years. And he said, what would be your dream project? And I said, doing Robbie's book. And, uh, you know, sorry, end of, this is the end of 2016. Okay. Just to clarify. And so he said, okay, that'd be great. The book had just come out. I devoured it. I loved it. Um, and he said, you know, put together a pitch and, and, you know, we'll see who's, who, how we can get this made. So I did way too much work. Like I put, spent you know a month putting together this big pitch on spec, maybe two months. It's like 30 pages. It's really well done. I did all the graphic design work myself. Right. And it was just about my vision for the film, what it would be like. It was like a full treatment. And you know they sent it around. And there were people who looked at it and were interested in it. But ultimately, I was not qualified really to make the film. They mm -hmm. wanted a bigger name director, which they found. And, Originally, there was a, a gentleman called uh, uh, Larry Weinstein, who's a phenomenal Canadian documentary Yeah, filmmaker. that's the name I saw. I was like, wow. And, and Larry is, I have to say, probably the menchiest guy in Canadian film. He's absolutely lovely. And he and I have become friends, and I have such a deep, profound love and respect for him. And you know, he started working with White Pine Pictures, which is the company that got the book rights, the life rights to Robbie's, Robbie's life, but also the book rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, to make the movie and uh, they went down for a couple shoots by now it's uh, july 2017 i had already found out that i didn't get the job that they gave it to to someone else what was that like just to stop me because you mm -hmm. will get into it a little bit yeah. but you're a band fan as well and totally. you really this was a passion project yeah. that that you were saying yeah. what was what was that like did oh, you just kind of so, take it in stride no, or it's, i mean it's Listen, being able to find success working, I think any creative industry is about coping with disappointment. Right. It was, it's really, it was really disappointing. It was really upsetting. I was very disappointed. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, you have to, I can't dwell on that. You just got to pick yourself up and keep grinding. That's, it's like, what else would I do? I have no university degree. Like I I really have no choice. So you just keep going. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I allow myself to feel disappointed. I'm not one of those who put that puts it to the back of my mind, and ignores it. Like it was upsetting for a couple of days. Yeah, uh, I was really bummed out. But you have to understand, I didn't. It wasn't unexpected for me, you know, because it was a high-profile property, IP, and I was like a, a director no one had heard of. Um, and so, although I was disappointed, I understood. Um, but by August, I or no, July 2017, Larry had done some shoots in uh, LA with Robbie and, and they got some sh- shooting done. And by August, I think it was like August 5th, this company White Pine Pictures sent me an email and asked me to come and meet with them. And so I went to White Pine and I knew White Pine. Peter Raymont, who's the, uh, um, who owns the company, is the president of the company, is a legendary Canadian filmmaker and, and uh, I, I knew of him. And we sort of knew each other, and so I went in to meet with their director of development um, and with Peter. And um, yeah, I found out in that meeting that for whatever reason, it didn't work with Larry. They were looking for someone else. Mm-hmm. He and Robbie, I found out later, didn't, didn't have the right chemistry. Right. And so they wanted to find someone else who had a bit better chemistry with Robbie. And, and then I said, listen, I'll go meet with Robbie. I'll be happy to, of course. So I went down to LA, and uh, I had the chance to meet with Robbie while I was there. And the, I always maintain that if I could just get in the room with him, you could sell it. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. But it, and and that's exactly what happened. And that was really exciting for me to have that opportunity because I just knew my pitch would be so compelling that he he would have to give it to me. How right. could he not? And that that ended up being what what happened. Now, what was it like? Because again, from a production standpoint, director attached, they were working on the project. Yeah. Things were beginning beginning to be shot you're brought in now after you successfully pitch it here was there any trepidation in terms of you know the various partners that were interested and like can we still do this film can we still make it or like because money when it comes to making a documentary money is very important too in terms of budgets and things like that and it had already been in development for some time how was that after was it a rocky start did you just immediately get in there it's important to acknowledge that i made this film not just with White Pine Pictures, yeah. but White Pine was partnered with Shed Creative Agency. Okay, these are the guys that produced Long Time Running, oh, Tragically wow. Hit yeah. Film, um, and they're sort of like a branded. They do a lot of. They're like an agency. They do branded advertising stuff, but they're the commercial arm of Universal Music Canada. So the head there is this guy Dave Harris. He's a lovely guy, um, and Sam Sutherland is 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 sort of is his right hand and. They were working in cooperation as a co-pro with White Pine. Mm-hmm. And so it was both White Pine and Shed that brought me into the fold. And so um, I didn't. I was kind of mystified by the process. I didn't exactly know how fundraising for a documentary worked in Canada. Yeah. But what I ended up realizing is that the, once we got underway and we put together all the pitch documents, we didn't raise as much, we didn't raise enough money to actually make the movie. Oh, wow. Um, which was, you know, very surprising to me because I had it in my head that, you know, something like this would, you know, we'd raise as much money as we would need because yeah. it's Robbie. Um, and I was obviously devastated and disappointed, but White Pine was like, let's just shoot the movie. And this was, you know, the, the um, an amazing thing they did because they rolled the dice and they went out on a limb. They said, with the money we have raised, let's just shoot the movie and we'll we'll get a rough cut and, and then we'll see what happens. See what happens. Yeah. We'll sell it. And that sort of ends up being what happened. But it was not like this was really an exercise of expectations not meeting results everything i thought every every however i thought things like this should go in my head this is not how it went right it was a grind it was a struggle you know we were a low budget small canadian movie Mm -hmm. with huge aspirations what i wanted it to be what it was in my head was this big important music doc would go all over the world right and i didn't know how we would get there but i knew that in order to get there i'd have to just haul ass and work as hard as I could um, because we didn't have the resources. We didn't have the support network to really do it. Right. And so we just had to grind and be diligent and work very hard. But 2018 was a really hard year for me. Uh, and it was a tough year for the production. And, you know, looking back on it, I'm kind of in awe. It's it's really, I'm in awe that, that it achieved what it achieved. It's right. kind of a miracle. 
and we'll, we'll get to the TIFF stuff, which yeah. is crazy and historic too. But sure. I just wanted to go back when when you were talking a little bit earlier about it being kind of like a dream project if you were to do any project. Let's talk about because I'm sure a lot of people will be interested your relationship with the band's music and and things of that nature. I'm I'm, I'm assuming, and I, it's been said before, you are a band fan. So can you tell me a little bit about your introduction to their music? I remember being in Algonquin Park with my dad. Uh, like paddling down Lake Lake Opiongo or paddling through some like meandering little creek. Yeah. And like there were like a couple of songs that he would just like were on repeat in his like terrible but charming dad singing voice. He would just <laughs> belt out yeah. to like, the, you know, the birds and the trees and the frogs in the pond. And it was like helpless. He liked to sing helpless old man, like Neil, mm-hmm. a couple of Neil tracks in there. Um, uh, what's the Joni track? I put up a parking lot. Yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then like number one, first and foremost, up on Cripple Creek. Really? Okay. And that was just like right in there. So so I knew the music, yeah. and and I didn't know much about the band, but I knew that song specifically. And you know, when I was 10, 11, 12, I really liked Neil and Crosby, Stills and Nash, and you just find the band in that course, world. Yeah. Like they're so important. And I think when I was like. 13 or 14 I watched the last waltz and I was like oh they're Canadian too that's cool yeah um because we like worship our own it's like that's 100% amazing. yeah and uh and it was just like I remember I remember being at camp summer camp and someone told me that they bumped in they met Robbie Robertson in like an Indigo's bookstore <laughs> and he they signed his the kid's base and he was like walking around he said he had a an, like a native chief with him wherever he went. It was like a spiritual advisor. Okay, that's what he said. And I was like, wow, Robbie Robertson has like a like a chief wherever he goes. That's kind of <laughs> so. It was like I was like a caricature of who these guys were. Yeah. But, but the music, I just became really, really into it. Um, like you know, Acadian Driftwood was a track that I always adored. Like the big ones, like Dixie, The mm-hmm. Weight. Um, and then as I learned who these guys were, I was like, oh, this, what an amazing group of guys. What a great story. Right. And Robbie was particularly fascinating to, fascinating to me, but also shrouded in a bit of, um, you know, myth-making and mythology. And, and also, that's when I learned or became aware of this conflict, mm-hmm. you know, that Robbie's the one that screwed over his friends, that's, mm-hmm. as people like to describe. And I identified that that whole dichotomy absorbs a lot of the oxygen in you know the legacy of this group but right. i didn't really care about that for me it was more just like i love the music and uh-huh. i, I yeah. really like listening to it and when i was in high school i turned in one of my notebooks dixie into like a um a comic book like really? i took the lyrics cool, yeah. of dixie i'll send it to you awesome. you can put it on the website or something um, so I was like, I was like really into it. It was like very much like history and music and, and it's like, I just loved it. I just loved those guys. I loved, I liked, I liked the world of Woodstock in, in the sixties. I thought that was so cool. And as I learned more about them, I was just like, these guys, they were my favorite band. You know, these yeah. guys are like the best. That's cool. Yeah. And, and you said you were particularly interested in Robbie and something that he's kind of held when, when he's been talking about this film and this entire process is like when you went in and talked to him and pitched him, yeah. which was the thing that led to this being, you know, you being attached to this, he saw himself uh, in you a little bit, which yeah, is interesting because even when you're talking about it, you're like, I went down south for a yeah. bit and I started experiencing, like there's a lot of this duality yeah. between you and Robbie. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Like, how does that feel to hear something like that? You've heard it a few times now. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, listen, it's a phenomenal compliment because he has lived an extraordinary life and whatever your opinion of the man is, no one can doubt the fact that his is an incredibly, you know, an incredible life lived. Yeah. And he's done amazing things and continues to do amazing things. So, you know, as an ambitious young person, that's a, a phenomenal compliment. But what I think he's speaking to is the spirit that he had when he was 16 years old, where he's like, you know, I will do fucking anything. I will fucking do anything to be with Ronnie Hawkins to play in this band. Like mm-hmm. I will play and my fingers bleed, like, you know, whatever it takes. And it's that spirit and energy that I brought to this film. I, I told him, you know, Robbie asked me point blank. He's like, why should you do this? And I was like, uh, you know, I had this whole spiel. And at the end I was like, honestly, this is a film about a very ambitious young man who against all odds 
is trying to make his mark in the world. That's my story. And I'll fucking die before this film's not as good as it can be. Right. I'll die before this film. I, I have nothing else going on, Robbie. I will give this everything I've got to give. Like, I'll die for this movie. It's like, how do you say no to that? It's yeah, like yeah. some bigger filmmaker with more of a reputation, maybe a bigger name, you know, can't, would not bring that to the table. 100%. You know, because it's like they don't have the bandwidth. They got a couple projects on the go, but I'm like, no, no, no. Like, hold my beer. Like, I will do anything I have to do for this. And you see that in the film. Uh, there's kind of a, a youthful energy about the film that I think a lot of documentary, especially when you get to stories like this it almost feels stale in comparison but we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit um so you make this film and and you get it complete in time to yeah. to open tiff which uh five days before five days yeah and i remember the lead up to that how much yeah. you guys were working on that now it's the first Canadian documentary to ever open the, the, the film festival i think there's been one other documentary yeah um and TIFF, if anybody's unaware, is like usually the opening movie is some like big budget blockbuster. I think it was like Outlaw King or something. Giant, yeah, yeah, giant and and movies. yeah, which which is fine, but like it's I think it's way more interesting to have a a Canadian movie at the Canadian Film Festival, but yeah. also a documentary. Talk me through how like that even became a thing. <laughs> well, I can just tell you how I heard of it. Yeah, yeah, go and for that. And this story, I guess there's no, I can swear on. This yeah, one hundred percent. So, because there are a lot of expletives involved. <laughs> so we were on this giant conference call, maybe in June, and we were talking about like, or maybe like late May. No, middle of June. And the whole team was on, all of our producers, and it was like, what do we have to do to get this thing over the finish line? We knew that we, we had already sent it to TIFF. We knew that it was a positive screening. Like we heard through the grapevine, nothing official, but like people talk. Mm -hmm. And we heard that it was well received. And I was just hoping that it would get in yeah and that we would get a gala or something cool like that and uh and so we were on this meeting and they delegate like robbie wanted to tell me <laughs> okay. i think the way the chain of command went you know tiff cameron cameron whoever at tiff mm -hmm. um called one of our executive producers and one of our executive producers called robbie or something like this and uh robbie told me on this call he's like they want us to be the opening night film. And I was, and I was like, because it was a call for everyone. Mm -hmm. I was like, fuck you. Fuck you, Robbie. No fucking way. Yeah. No fucking way, Robbie. Shut the fuck up. And he's like, he started laughing. He's like, no, I, I swear. So you got to go finish that fucking movie. <laughs> and I was, I was, I started, I, yeah, I started crying. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, who did all the motion graphics in the movie, who's, who's like very much my right hand man. Uh, he was sitting there and I was like still on the call and I just like hugged him and started crying and it was like it was a, it's like winning the Stanley Cup yeah you know there's no other way to describe it it's like it, it's it's the most it was the most incredible it's one of the most prestigious film festivals there is too yeah it's so. wild and, and, and you know them picking our film it wasn't the obvious choice mm -hmm. but it's like it's like a heart and soul pick mm -hmm. it's like this film had a lot of fucking heart and soul right you know and that's something that means a great deal to me so you know, for me, that was, you can't beat it. Um, and uh, yeah, that was beyond my wildest dream. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I think a lot of people would ask you about the cool kind of people that you had in the film. You had people like Eric Clapton, yeah. Taj Mahal, Van Morrison, David yeah. Geffen, these kind of huge music legends. Um, but I kind of want to talk about some of the people in the film that you wouldn't expect that I really think stole the show. Like and Dominique Robertson. Exactly. That's the person I'm getting to. Yeah. So Dominique Robertson, ex-wife of Robbie, very much. I've, I've talked about her on the podcast a few times. Somebody who, in a lot of ways, I think is the heart and soul of the film. Oh, I think, yeah, I agree with you. For, yeah, for sure. and very insightful, very eloquent, um, very real. How how did that become a thing? How did you how did you approach that? Was that something that you had thought of from the beginning? And how did it become such a huge part of the movie? So Dominique, Dominique was the first, other than Robbie, was the first interview we shot. Really? In like February of 2018. Okay. And on the day we shot that interview, Kirash um, Sadi was my director of photography on the film. We get get to set. And she's gonna, Dominique's gonna come like an hour. And he's like, where's the second camera? And I was like, I thought you had the second camera. And we look at each other and we're like, 
<laughs> where the fuck's our v-cam yeah, yeah and we realized that we left the camera on the uh driveway of our airbnb like literally on the driveway oh and we both fucking died i was so <laughs> anxious because it was such a big interview yeah and it's like a big opportunity such a big everything and then we leave one of the cameras and i was like oh my god this is brutal and the producer who was on set with us went and drove back to the house and picked it up. And thankfully, it was, it was just there? sitting there. No wow. one touched it. It was amazing. And, uh, and, and then Dominique showed up. And one thing that was clear about Dominique immediately, she just had this radiant, beautiful energy. Mm -hmm. Just a really lovely woman, down to earth, very cool, beautiful woman, and very approachable, easy to talk to. She was like, she thought it was cool that I got this big job. Yeah. And and she thought it was great that I was from Toronto and, and everything like this. And and she was just really sweet. And we shot this interview and she was she's so smart and articulate. And what I didn't know before I shot the interview, no one thought to tell me, i.e. Robbie and his manager Jared, is that she Dominique later in life when they moved after the band I think she became a counselor mm -hmm. specializing I think a therapist specializing in helping families who are trying to cope with the uh, chemical addiction issues and I didn't know that and so when I was asking her about some of those darker days in Woodstock she had such an authority in her voice that was so humbling and so wonderful and and so I, I was so grateful you know that interview brings so much depth to the movie it was really a, 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 a such a wonderful gift that's awesome and yeah i think for anybody who hasn't seen the film yet it's something that's probably just a nice kind of gift for a lot of fans because you hear especially with the band you you can retread a lot of the same things and people saying the same things and it's such a new fresh and interesting perspective uh as somebody who it's but, nice to hear, you know, Dominique is like, she's not talking about these rock and roll. No, no, not at all. Icon. She's like talking about her friend Lee, mm -hmm. you know, her friend Rick. Yeah. Richard was like a wounded bird, she told me. Yeah. He was so sweet, you know, and that's, I think that's so touching. And it's that spirit that I really tried to th put into every frame of the movie. For sure. And from an archival standpoint... It's something obviously really important, especially when you're talking about a legacy act like the band. Um, but one thing that was interesting to me, and I was thinking about this prior to going into watching your movie, is we all know that the band was pretty mysterious. They didn't give a ton of interviews, um, or if they did, it was usually people more comfortable, like like Robbie, which yeah, is good Robbie because this is leave. about Robbie's yeah. life. Yeah. Um, but one thing that was interesting to me is like there's not a ton of images or a ton of photographers out there that took a ton of shots like say the Rolling Stones or the Beatles who you pretty much can find a picture of every there's like, day. There's like three or four vendors, three yeah, or four photographers. Exactly. But when I walked into this movie and sat through it, I saw a lot of stuff that I'd never seen before. And I saw just a lot of archival materials yeah. that as somebody who has dealt with a little bit of that, yeah. it's very painstaking. It's very sure. hard. We've talked a little bit about it off microphone here but can you tell me about dealing with this archival footage like how did you go about sourcing stuff that hadn't been seen before well there are a couple places you know there's there's what i call the first level of any archival dig which is just finding stuff that's online going to vendors that are online and seeing their catalog and downloading relevant clips mm -hmm. and then there's like the deep dive where you knock on the doors of these photographers and you ingratiate yourself to them and you gain their trust and you ask you go take a look at the holy grail which is negatives that have mm -hmm. never been seen that's a lot easier if the photographers are, have passed on and it's the states that you're dealing with yeah. um you know so uh, for example david gar yeah was a an american photographer who took a lot of very influential pictures of dylan and this person and that person and in 1970 or 1969 went and spent a day or two that's it just a day or two with the guys in woodstock and what he produced is probably like a thousand pictures that's crazy and maybe uh 40 of them 50 of them are on getty images but what i'm interested in are the outtakes yeah. are the shots that no one's seen before i want contact sheets because when a photographer often is taking pictures it's not just next you know, there's, he's taking enough pictures that I can turn those pictures into a movie. Yeah. Uh, you can edit them so they have like a kinetic, almost motion graph or stop motion 
sort of animation animated quality. And so I his uh, um, archives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the storage locker, and uh, the folks who run the estate were like kind enough to let me go and look through what they had there. And so I spent over the course of two visits, like 10 hours, 10, 10 or 15 hours scanning these negatives that have never been seen before and these contact sheets and finding shots of the guys goofing around, laughing that are just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, similarly for Barry Feinstein, I, I, his widow's woman called Judith Jameson, who's so lovely. She's an artist in Woodstock and she's so cool and funny and just lovely. And, and she, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in her house. She let me just like stay over essentially awesome. and and look through the archive. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff on the 66 tour in there and that was really helpful. Um, but the Holy Grail of Elliot? the band is Elliot Landy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I saw Elliot a few week a week or two ago in New York. I gave him a big hug and, you know, his and I relationship has been tumultuous because, you know, he's the gatekeeper. He's yeah. very, very guarded over his wonderful archive and, and I you know like trade a kidney to go look at it um but but once we were able to reach an agreement and i was able to go see what was there he was so you know the photos he has what you've never seen out of his archive is amazing it's so amazing it's so amazing yeah um and a lot of those pictures are what you're referring to in the film yeah shots like the guys you know at dini's diner in woodstock hanging out and then the chef comes out they took a couple pictures together with this big chef and mm-hmm. it was lovely and uh, david addy yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, david addy is a was an american commercial photographer who shot a uh, did a photo shoot with the band that was supposed to be on for the time magazine cover oh, really? until they switched it to the um artwork the, yeah to the uh, uh caricatures mm-hmm. um but his son eli addy who has since become a you know dear friend of mine one of the good friends that i've met over this process he's a tv writer in la and he wrote on the west wing for many years and he's a super interesting guy was like a political staffer before then and he you know reached out he's like look i got all these pictures i'd love for you to put them in the movie and we found a home for them and you know they're great that's so cool so you know it comes together but it's a lot of work and you just have to be dogged and and knock on the doors of the archive and then my friend uh, Adam Stewart, who's an archivist in Toronto, who, who works at uh, Niagara Custom Labs, um, he's, a, he's an incredible film archivist. He's a, he's a director of photography who's like meat and potatoes, is shooting on film, 16 millimeter. He's mm-hmm. a director and, and sort of an artist. He and I spent, you know, I think a 24-hour period rummaging through Robbie's locker oh, yeah. in, uh, in L.A. And there's a lot of cool stuff in there. I bet. Um, y- you know, there's... Uh, um, I found this pinstripe suit, cotton suit, and I was like, "This looks so familiar." It's the suit Robbie wore in the 1966 tour with Dylan. I was gonna say, yeah, very, yeah, it's like very famous, and I was like, "That's so cool." And we found some really wonderful photos in there too. So it's just making sure you leave no stone unturned. Mm-hmm. One of the I was just thinking about it; those uh, little home movies that Robbie would make. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know that Robbie right. has from an early age, and you read in his book an obsession with with film um so things like that were interested because i had heard about the films before and i heard about how he would make these things but i never and you put some of that in your movie and it's just uh it's very personal it's very touching because it's usually just like kind of home type stuff from around woodstock um was he guarded with things like that no absolutely not he was like surprisingly just like yeah whatever go have a peek (laughs) yeah 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 so we find like you know two hours of super eight mm-hmm. really cool stuff and like leslie mann from the band mountains in it and, and michael pollard who's in bonnie and clyde's in it you know stuff like that mm-hmm. um and then you know there's one shot that didn't make it in the movie of garth playing in the backyard with the kids and you know it's it, it was it's it was phenomenal so there's a big there was a wealth of treasure trove of material to rely upon that's cool and uh it's a lot of fun and our just work to find it yeah now one thing that uh got me uh, and others that I've talked to is kind of the climax of the film. It's mm-hmm. very emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was definitely a tear in my eye. Mm. Um, wow, it's very sweet. It revolves around obviously kind of the disintegration of the kind of relationship between um, Robbie and Levon, um, and kind of talking about that, which you know you talked about earlier. And I know a lot of fans are very obsessed with. It's it's something that's unfortunately taking up a large part of the legacy yeah. um and 
it's talked a bit about in testimony, obviously a little bit more in Levon's book. Mm-hmm. How did you, I, I'm assuming it was very hard to broach that subject because you didn't want the film to be dominated by that, but it obviously is an important piece for a lot of people. How did you, how did you want to approach that? What were those conversations like with your producers or even with Robbie about that kind of thing? Um, and how did you kind of arrive at such an eloquent way of talking about it in the movie? Well, first and foremost, you know, by just the nature of what I was hired to do, mm-hmm. I was. It, people have to understand that I was hired to make a film about the band through Robbie's eyes. It's Robbie's story. Yeah. And that right out of the gate presents challenges, which I am aware of, because Levon can't be in the movie because he's no longer with us, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very much Robbie having the last word in a way. And I understand that. With that said, you know, it was important to me that I did whatever I could to try and, um, you know, present this in a way that was eloquent and honored the legacies and memories of everybody else. Because ultimately what motivates me is a love of the music and a love of all those guys. Like, Levon is a personal hero of mine. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. Like, one of the great regrets that I never got to see him while he was still with us. Um, so... I think everyone understood that it was something that should be broached in the movie. It's just a question of how. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one of the failings of the, not failings, but, uh, you know, I, I think when I read Robbie's book, a glaring omission was that he, na- he made no mention of it. Mm-hmm. And I think from Robbie's perspective, it's something that has absorbed a lot of oxygen and a lot of his attention over the years. And people always ask him about it. And, you know, his response has been consistent. It's like, he, you know, it doesn't mean anything to him. This is a one-man sword fight. So mm-hmm. he describes it. And, you know, I, I wasn't there. Yeah. I never talked to Levon. I never talked to, uh, uh, I never, I, I didn't see what happened. I didn't know about their conflict. What I can empathize with is this, how challenging it must have been to be, you know, think about who you were hanging out with when you were 17. Imagine if you had to be friends with them for like the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, people change. You're not interested in that anymore. You know, Robbie didn't want to do this or didn't want to do that. And, you know, people grow apart. So I think that's a universal thing. And I'm empathetic towards that in regards to this, the, the conflict and, and the songwriting royalties. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of experience with music publishing and things like that. So I don't I don't really know about it. Mm-hmm. What I can speak to um, is is that I think it's unfortunate that it's, it's absorbed so much energy in the legacy of the group. I think that's unfortunate. Um, but ultimately, it was something that I had to make mention of in the film because it it's there. Mm-hmm. And it's just a question of, like, how do you do that? Um, and so it was, it's very challenging. It was a bit of tooth to put in the movie. Um, but we did it as, you know, sort of gracefully as we could. And honestly, for a movie that is about celebrating Robbie and Robbie's life. It celebrates Levon a lot towards the end in a way that I think anybody who is apprehensive... Yeah, but everyone knows Levon's the man. Yeah, well, everybody knows Levon's the man, and he kind of steals the scene, even though he doesn't want to, uh, but he definitely steals that ladder. Yeah, but I wanted, I wanted the, fil- the end of the film... The, the, like, the ending of the movie is my, like, my love letter to Levon. Yeah, you can tell. You yeah, because it's like... That's the whole thing. I was hired to make this film about Robbie, mm-hmm. but, like... You know, great, but Levon is like Levon's Lee, like Levon's Levon. I, 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 I have just as much love for him as I do for anybody else right. in that group, and you know th- that was very important to me. And I'm glad you identified that and and picked that up because like he really steals the show. Mm-hmm. It's like him for five minutes at the end of the movie, yeah. almost uninterrupted. Um, and uh, and yeah, that was very important to me just because I think he's such a phenomenal. He, he is the heart and soul, you know. Yeah, and you, I think you've put it to rest for a lot of people, and that's one of the reasons why, too, I want to have a chance to talk to you because, like anything, there is that kind of jaded fan out there, which yeah. it bugs me, too, because I'm the utmost fan when people yeah. kind of uh, don't give things a chance. What would you say to people, though, that are persistent about not seeing the movie because the title alone? Oh, that's the last well, one. Well, I think the, the title... Uh, I didn't pick the title. I think it's easy to see through, but yeah. people that don't, I, I, I get, I totally appreciate. Listen, I totally appreciate why there's like a bunch of the fans who are like, "Fuck that." Yeah, 
you know i get that but at the same time i think people have to be mindful of the fact that it's like not as though i chose to make this movie just about robbie da, 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 da. Yeah. it's very much what i was hired to do and it's mm-hmm. like i you know and i don't re- obviously regret that so yeah. it was a phenomenal journey for me and a great job and there are people who just don't think that that should exist mm-hmm. don't think a, Rob- a film about robbie should be a thing it should be about the band and it's like Maybe that's true, but that's not the film that we made, and that's not the film that I was hired to make, and that's mm-hmm. not the film that I think we could get made. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it took the form that it did. But, um, you know, to people who are apprehensive about seeing it, you know, I, I think what I would say to that is, like, I, although I appreciate their apprehensions, the spirit in which I made the movie was, like, a spirit of love for Levon, for Rick, for Richard, for Garth, and for Robbie. It's a love letter to their brotherhood. It's a love letter to what they accomplished together. It's a love letter to the music. It's it's a time capsule so future generations will be able to learn more about them so it can introduce current generations to the music. Um, that's the spirit in which I made the movie. I was aware of the conflict and that there's beef there. People people jokingly will be like, oh, I'm team Levon. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, good great like i'm team the music you Mm -hmm. know i'm team the band um and and that's very much how i feel about it so if there are people who like don't want to watch it because they don't like robbie or they think he's a jerk or something like that you know that's their prerogative i think it's unfortunate because i we made the movie in the spirit of love and robbie's you know it's not like he was in the edit suite with me he didn't have editorial control we listened to his notes of course i i wanted him to appreciate the film as well but um Ultimately, you know, I think people, I, I hope people will give it a chance because of that. That's great. And I, I think, and I've, I've been preaching it too, is like what people need to remember is that this is about the music that yeah. these guys made. So, and this film does it so, so wonderfully, um, especially, I don't want to go back to it that much, but again, the, that archival footage and the yeah. way you juxtaposition those and, songs with those clips and things of that nature is like, I think it's a breath of fresh air for yeah. a lot of people that love this group dearly. I appreciate that. And, you know, at the beginning of the process, I was very fortunate that I had the chance to uh, go uh, to Levon's farm, mm-hmm. his barn in, in, in Woodstock, rather, and, and um, spend maybe 45 minutes chatting with his daughter, Amy Helm, who was so warm mm-hmm. and just like such a lovely human being um, and really, really sweet. And, you know, I asked her about this a little bit and what she said, I, you know, is what I really came to understand, which is like, whatever happened between those guys being Robbie and Levon, that was between them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she wasn't there is sort of how she described it to me. Um, and, you know, that's, sort of how I feel I don't I, it's hard for me to speak to I find it a bit uncomfortable because I wasn't there either yeah I don't know really what happened um, what I know is that I just want to celebrate the genius of Levon Helm the genius of Robbie's songs mm-hmm. and the genius of what they made together um, and uh, if you know people would rather focus on uh, you know this dispute mm-hmm. totally their prerogative but uh, you know there's enough of there's just enough drama and shit in the world and it's like okay you guys can go debate that i'm gonna like put on rock and chair or like the night they drove old dixie down and just fucking chill and that's that's my of course band that's cool um all right let's go to a little bit of a lighter note i opened up uh the floodgates to the listeners to to ask some questions here so i got a few here sure um first one comes from ricardo Love Ricardo. He's he's been a longtime listener, and he asked, "What's the most interesting thing you came across during the making of the doc?" In Robbie's, in in Robbie's sort of archive, in his sort of lockup where he keeps all of his photos and material, we spent you know twelve hours combing through it as best we could, and uh, I found six negatives that had never seen the light of day before, um, and it was shots of like a smashed up jaguar in the 60s rick richard and levon were known i think the three of them were known for driving pretty fast through those winding roads in woodstock and crashing up cars and it's a sequence of photos of like the it's the car smashed up in the driveway the tow truck coming to take it away and then levon watching it go sort of looking sad and dejected as it's going away um and uh 
I think Elliot, at one point, he was like, those are, he, he thought that those were his negatives or that mm-hmm. Robbie had his negatives and those were his and I should send them back. And then I realized he was in one of the pictures. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah. like a 25-year-old Elliot Landy. So That's I was like, funny. oh, you took this picture, did you? Okay. <laughs> um, so that was really cool. And just yeah. being in that storage lockup was really neat. And then just spending a day in Robbie's studio filming his guitars. This mm-hmm. footage didn't make it into the movies, but it was really cool. And we have, you know, like the guitar from the last waltz and for this and for that. And they're like these magnificent rock and roll historical items. And we were just like hanging out with them. It was very cool. That's cool. Okay, here's another here's another interesting one from Harry. Did you interview Garth Hudson for the film? Yeah, I, I uh, had this really Hudsonian fever dream bizarre weekend where I left Toronto on a Friday night in February, last February. And we drove, my friend Adam Stewart, my archivist and my shooter, part-time shooter, uh, drove down to Woodstock with uh, um, the editor of the film, Eamon O'Connor, and Jan House, the great archivist, um, and uh, a good friend of Garth's. And the four of us went down there, and we were told to get to the diner, Kingston Diner, at midnight. And Adam and I were there two minutes to midnight. We were so stoked. We made it on time. We wouldn't have to let make Garth wait. Mm-hmm. And Garth and Maude and Jan and, and Eamon didn't show up till like 2.30 in the morning. And I was like sleeping under the table <laughs> and we had like a meal with them and we chatted. And then the next day at like 9 PM, the interview, we scheduled to shoot an interview with Garth at like two or three in the afternoon, but he, he didn't arrive or we didn't start shooting it till like eight or nine o'clock. And what I sort of identified is that Garth has never really been, I think the strongest verbal communicator. And, and I think he's acknowledged this that um, interviews has never been his forte. And also, um, you know, he's, he is uh, at quite an advanced age at this point. Um, and so although we shot an interview with Garth, I really thought that it would not do justice to, to his ideas and his thoughts by putting it in the movie. And so we were able to integrate Garth's voice through archives, which was really great. And then we were able to um, uh, of course put his music in all over the place because he was the musical genius of the band um, but if this idea that like oh he didn't want to do it or he doesn't like Robbie it was like not at all true he was him and Maude were stoked to the, the, the meet and they were lovely and uh, we had a really nice weekend with them uh, but ultimately it was I think my decision that it, it probably wouldn't uh, fit into the movie mm-hmm. um, but uh, no we definitely did shoot an interview with him that's cool The dining, Garth does have a tendency to show up late I think even Robbie mentions that in his book yeah he, he's sort of I, I, you know, I very much think that uh, uh, Garth is on his own frequency yeah. and, and beats to his own drum and, and you either get on that frequency or sort of get out of the way yeah Another one from Harry here. He's, he's got a lot of good questions. I'm curious if there's anyone that you think would have been great for the doc for for whatever reason you weren't able to wrangle in time for it. Um, well, we didn't get Dylan for the doc. And that's sort of, that's the one big outlier, of course. Yeah. But uh, I don't know that Dylan is famous for not liking press and not yeah, wanting to do interviews. And, you know, as I learned making this film, when you interview someone who doesn't want to be interviewed it's really not that compelling and, and it's not that strong. It's, it's like really, pulling teeth, really. Yeah, re- very much so. I, I call it, I call them teeth pullers. They're like, you know, it's tough. Um, so that would have been cool. Uh, I would have loved to have Joni in the film because uh, mm-hmm. her, her, her and Robbie and Dominique and Geffen were very good friends in the 70s and took this famous trip to Paris together. And that's where she wrote Free Man in Paris. So that would have been nice. But she was unwell when we were filming. Um, and similarly, Neil would have been cool, mm-hmm. but I would have put Joni above Neil if I had my pick. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't ask about this, but now I'm thinking about it and I think people are interested in it too. Obviously, Martin Scorsese became attached as yeah. the executive producer on this film. So yeah. Ron Howard as well mm-hmm. and, and Brian Glazer through their, uh, documentary. They have like a... Imagine documentary. Yeah, Imagine documentary. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of producers, like when you look on IMDb, there's a lot of credited producers yeah. in this film. So obviously a lot of notes and a lot of really high oh, profile people giving you It was you brutal. Info. The notes were terrible. <laughs> yeah. What, 
did that change at all when those two obviously obviously they probably brought in money and acclaim and things of that nature but did they give you any insights that you you treasure or really helped you kind of push through that well, last remaining bit of the post-production process imagine documentaries is headed by this guy called justin wilkes mm-hmm. um and his partner sarah bernstein um and meredith coffers those are like the three principles that imagine documentaries and they are so amazing and talented and brilliant and and the brain trust that they bring with them just took our little film, put it on a rocket ship. And I think they more than anyone really helped me achieve my vision and really forced me to be better, mm-hmm. you know? And it never felt like they were like giving me, they were telling me what to do or telling me how to direct this or direct that. But it was, it was them just very cleverly questioning decisions in a way that would force me to reconsider them. And be like, what is the best approach here? How should I handle this? What should I do here? Mm-hmm. Um, and they made me better. They really helped me hone my instincts. And, I'm, and the brain trust that the Imagine folks brought were amazing. And Ron Howard is such a lovely guy. Um, and Michael Rosenberg, who's the uh, other executive at Imagine, is a lovely guy. And Brian Grazier was very kind as well. So that was amazing. They were, they were just the best. They're mm-hmm. the gold standard, no doubt. Um, and then... Uh, Scorsese also gave notes. Um, he his headline note was "terrific picture, real emotion," and I was like, "Put that shit on my tombstone." Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Martin Scorsese, "terrific picture, real emotion." Mm-hmm. You know how scary as shit it is to have Scorsese watch your movie. Yeah, I can only imagine. It's like, it's like not only great filmmaker, but last waltz. It's kind of no. He's like one of the most prolific, if not the most prolific, music documentarian. Yeah. yeah. George Harrison's doc. Too. Yeah, Bob making, Dylan's doc. Isn't like, he making one on the Ramones right now or something like is that? Is he? Too? Wow. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, this is the, the premier guy. And and so, you know, just from that perspective, he was great. And and so, yeah, it, that was really cool that he liked the movie. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, the very last question here before, before we end things off. A lot of people are asking how they can see this movie. Obviously, we were very lucky. I saw it yeah. at TIFF. Um, you've shown it at a... a multiple film festivals already um if i'm correct after tip it was picked up by magnolia yep um do you have any insight that you can give any of the listeners on distribution for especially a lot of questions around canada us and the uk okay so i don't know i don't know if this is public yet okay but i'm just gonna like swing for the fences here because even if it's not like it's about the movie yeah just let me know and we can take it out okay okay (laughs) um so in canada for our Canadian friends, it's going to be on Crave. So go get yourself a Crave subscription. Crave is great. Crave is really, it's not only great, but it's like for the Canadian media and entertainment industry, it's yeah. really important. Randy Lennox and everyone at Bell Media are just like Canadian creators, Canadian filmmakers. They got our backs so hard. You know, they really support us and that's awesome. And so if you don't have Crave, like go get Crave. And, and it really coexists nicely with like a Netflix or another subscription service. It's got the best docs, I, I have to say. Oh, totally. Yeah, it has the best docs. So everyone get, get Crave. Um, and so it'll, it'll be avail- available there and it'll be a high profile release because this is a, a Crave original. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for our American friends, it's, it's going to have a wide release. Cool. Um, so we'll probably be in 20, 25 cities around the U.S., um, and that'll be in like February, I think. So you'll when when it comes out, you'll do like a little shout out for us, so 100%. so people will know. 100%, yeah. um, and then uh, after that, it'll be on Hulu in okay. the U.S., cool. which is another phenomenal streaming service. So everyone can can check them out. Go get Hulu as well. Um, but it'll be available. People will be able to see this one, which I'm That's delighted awesome. about. That's cool. Any Oscar hope there? Just in the back of your mind, best original or best documentary? I feel like it could be in the running there. Um, it's a little cheeky question, but I mean, <laughs> I, you ask that question like, yeah, fucking Oscar, like, yeah, what the fuck? Um, I, I don't, I think that's silly. I don't know. I can't even begin to. Imagine I'm gonna say to that. I'm gonna say Oscar nom, best original song, Robbie Robertson, Once We're Brothers. Brothers. Okay, all right, <laughs> might as well. Well, thank you, Daniel, for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure to get to thank know you, you so over much. the past few months and uh, yeah. call you a friend. And thank obviously you, a massive fan of the band. Um, and yeah. I hope a lot of people learn a lot from this. And, you know, Daniel's got a great Instagram. Go check it out. He's oh, right amazing, on. He's uh, amazing, what, what do you call it, illustrator, drawer? Just yeah, I'm just, like, I'm just like a, a documentarian of life through yeah. my drawings. It's fantastic. So we'll put some stuff in the cool. show notes. Cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. But yeah, I appreciate it, man. Right on. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with filmmaker of Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band's Daniel Rohr. Uh, like I said, you know, it was a great pleasure to sit down and talk to him. He's a great friend of mine now uh, throughout this process of making this documentary. Uh, and it's been great to see it, you know, do really well in the film circuit and get distribution in theaters and on streaming platforms. One of the things I've been seeing a lot of lately is people being a little bit apprehensive about the film, obviously, because it's about Robbie, and we know that that's kind of loaded for some people, but I would implore just check it out. Uh, it does give us a really good glimpse at stuff we've never seen related to the band, um, and it is a love letter to the entire group. Definitely check that out. Uh, I want to extend a few thank yous as well. Regularly, we keep this a pretty uh, small operation here, but uh, I had some help recording this interview. Uh, we did it in person. Uh, so I want to thank my friend uh, Taylor Wallace, who helped us record the wonderful audio. It turned out amazing. I would also like to t thank my regular editor and co-producer, Tegan Chevrier, uh, who helped me get prepared for this interview and make sure that we were in a good spot, uh, bringing it out for release for everybody here. Um, but do us a favor and follow us online. We post amazing content on our social pages, or so I'd like to think. Uh, especially on our Instagram. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook, etc., etc. And you can find that at The Band Podcast. Again, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Look out for more of these and regular episodes of the show as well. Thank you. <laughs>